Hello. Hello, sir. How, How the hell did you find this music? <laughs> it was just off one of those royalty-free music websites that I, I paid, I don't know, $50 for the track or something. And yeah, I, it, it's infectious, isn't it? Money worthwhile. I'm, I'm definitely pumped. Is it by um, Epidemic Sounds by any chance? Could be. Probably. That's the one that I use the most now. It's brilliant. It's pretty good, but I just received an invoice and I canceled the subscription because I just don't use it. <laughs> I have yeah. no videos that I'm currently producing. And a month ago or so, I thought I would do 30 YouTube videos in 30 days. I made exactly one subscribe to Epidemic Sounds, got the Descript subscription, everything, but then a hundred thousand other things uh, were on the schedule as well. And so that's parked for a couple of months in front of me. I, I use it. I do quite a few podcasts and I, I like to have uh, just like random stuff in there, random sound effects and random noises and random music to make things funny and that kind of thing. So I do, I do get my use out of it. I think it's ten ten dollars or twenty dollars or something a month. It's yeah, it's very affordable. Yeah. Very. It's affordable. it's crazy how how much it adds to the product experience. If you listen to a podcast that has a pretty good jingle at the beginning, it's wild. I I think controversial. I think it's one of the most important parts of the podcast because it's it just sets the scene. So many people mm -hmm. when they come on this podcast. The, the music kicks in at the beginning. They start doing a little bit of a dance and it, it just sets the mood for the podcast. It, it's really, really underrated. And then obviously is the, the audio brand inside of it as well. So every time somebody hears that ping of that music, they know it's your show, which I don't really get that. I don't get that advantage because it's just, it's probably used on a million other podcasts as well, to be perfectly honest, but it, it, it does set the mood. I think it's really valuable. I think it's one of the most important bits. 100%. Yeah, yesterday, um, since I'm nervous, I prepared and went through your public records of the different podcasts, listened <laughs> longer than what I would have hoped to the episode with uh, Paul yes. right after he got his vaccine shot. And I also noticed kind of the jingle, but then hearing it right now just made me happy. It's been a long day, but <laughs> definitely lifts the mood. Yeah. I noticed you're drinking beer as well. You said you were drinking beer. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a Guinness West Indies. Oh, is it gonna West Indies Porter? Is that different than the regular Guinness? Apparently. Don't know how. Doesn't taste any different. <laughs> Did you also pour it in the right sequence where you would pour three quarters and then wait 118 seconds and then pour the rest? No, I haven't. I haven't poured it. It's 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 drink. I'm drinking it straight out of the bottle. So I'm, I'm, I'm like an naughty. elm. <laughs> yeah, I'm being naughty with it. Um, yeah, I have a um, German beer. Ooh, it's Spezial Blauhaus Tegernsee, right here. Oh, it's a uh, easy to drink, straight up beer. I poured it in a glass, but. Definitely not the right glass, chica tumbler glass from IKEA. But anyway, gets the gets the job done. <laughs> do you like uh, Do you like Weiss beer? Mm, 
not my not my favorite worm. So I would say up until 10 years ago or so, I was definitely a beer purist. I don't know how it is in, in the UK, but if you grow up in Austria and Germany, there's all this propaganda that German beer and Austrian beer is the best. We have the best pills and we have the best lagers. And you just get used to the same fl- it's it's a very flavorless but extremely prickly sparkling type of beer and i it triggers horror and like deep memories from the past when i get this type of um sensory experience in my mouth but then i i moved to the yes in 2013 and it opened up like the entire world of craft beer. Someone gave me an IPA for the first time. First time I drank it, I was like, holy crap, that's bad. I really don't like it. It's way too bitter. And then a couple of weeks later, me and my buddy went to this like random bar somewhere in the buttfuck nowhere. And I saw Stiegelbier, which is like a, a beer from Salzburg, like from the state of Salzburg in Austria. Okay. And I said, oh my God, Austrian beer, you have to taste it. it. It will change your life. So I get two of these, bring it over to him. And we, we taste it and tasted like shit. Tasted like nothing. Like, honestly, it tasted like super bad. And he looked at me with, with his eyes like, serious? Like, are you fucking serious? And um, yeah, ever since I I was a little bit more tame on proclaiming the Central European beers are the answer to, to all of your prayers. And yeah, IPA, I would say, or Belgian style, like stronger, more flavorful beers yeah. are what I'm vibing right now. Yeah, Be- Belgians are always good. I, I mean, we've, we've got pretty good beer in the UK as well. The craft scene in the UK is pretty pretty damn strong even in even in little barnsley we're not really known for much and we've got some quite good beers that are made really close even in yorkshire just wider which is Mm -hmm. the biggest county in the uk but still not that big we've got a whole load of craft beers just in yorkshire and a lot of them are good and the ipas they all taste the same nothing Mm -hmm. special about those whatsoever but yeah I'm, i'm definitely with you with uh a Lef or something like that, a Belgian beer, a Lef. That's super good. And in the UK craft scene, if you say the IPAs taste all the same, what type of beers would you say are they focusing most on? Is it kind of pale ales or stouts or quite quite a mix? To be honest, we've got um, one, one that I really like is one called Tiny Rebel, which I think is in Wales. Um, and they they do all kinds of stuff, and one of my favourites is a is a stout, which is a a, a marshmallow stout, uh, stay puffed. I think they call it stay puffed tiny rebel marshmallow stout or something like that, and it, it is delicious. Um, so yeah, we've got got some good stouts, good porters. I mean, a lot of them are IPAs. A lot of them are IPAs or session. They usually <coughs> call them session ales or whatever because it's just easy for people to drink. Uh, it, it it tastes better than your average crappy beer in the UK, like a like a Foster's or a Carlsberg or something like that. It tastes better than that, but it ain't it ain't much better. It's smoother, but most people just want yeah. a, la- a lager, don't they? A, a lager or a, a, an ale or you know just a beer, just something that's 
easy to drink. Most people are not drinking it like wine, like the way that we're talking about it now, which is probably boring everybody to death. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could go on for for hours. Like the 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 sentence, just a beer. I've heard that a lot. Uh, I I played football here in Berlin, and just like in a league, and the the tradition here, maybe it's the same in the UK. After each practice, someone has to bring a crate, and literally for every little violation, kind of too late to practice, forgot your socks after the game first yellow card, first game of the year, first goal of the year, you just get noted and it says has to bring one crate of beer. And then they do like marks, like Craig has to bring two. And then the next time you forget your socks, three until you work your way down to zero. And so literally after every practice, um, there would be uh, a crate of beer. And it's, it's crazy because um, it seems like each group or each subculture develops their own preferences and my club they were drinking berliner pilsner it's like a pilsner beer yeah and the first time around when when i had to bring a crate i i didn't exactly remember which kind of beer it was and i just remember it was like something with berliner and there was another beer called berliner kindle has also pilsner brought a crate and man the looks that the guys gave me they were like you gotta learn <laughs> and it I kid you not, it, it pretty much tastes the same. It's just a fucking beer. Get over yourself. Well, a, a lot a lot of the time, a lot of people are just drinking to get pissed, just drinking to get drunk. They're, they're not drinking your average person. They just It is just a beer because they just want to get drunk. That's the only reason they're drinking. Or they're with friends and they want something easy to drink. Easy uh, to drink, yeah. When, when you, you think of a... A Lef or a Belgian beer. I mean, they're heavy, heavy beers that they're delicious, but they're a meal in themselves. Um, like like this porter that I'm drinking, I wouldn't drink a few of these. I'd probably only have one or two because they're bon appetit. Yeah, because they're they're a meal. They're heavy, heavy beasts. So imagine if you rocked up with a crate of Lef and what is that eight or nine percent? I'm sure they do a twelve percent version of it as well in Belgium when I went last time. There was a twelve percent one, which is delicious, but whew, it's uh, it's strong for a beer. <laughs> Belgian brewers are crazy. Yeah, um, I I just want to get out one story because it's so absurd, and I don't know if there's going to be anyone else that I can tell it to. So today, the most random thing happened to me. I I was showering, and uh, me and my girlfriend were working uh, from the apartment, and when I'm in the shower, I put my box shorts on. I suddenly hear you like, come here, come here, help. There's a bird. I was like, what do you mean? There's a bird. And so a bird flew into our room and the way that um, windows are constructed in Germany is you have usually in older apartments, two layers of windows and we had both of them open. So what happened was there was a deadly chase of a tiny bird that was flying after a butterfly and the butterfly, no control over its motions, like flew in the space in between the two layers of windows and the bird flew into the same nook. So there was a risk of the bird then flying into our room and essentially becoming a roommate. Because like, how, how the hell do you get a yeah. bird out of the apartment? And it took us a couple of minutes um, 
but yeah, we managed at some point to close the outer windows and then yeah, flew away. Seems to to also catch the butterfly in the tight, tighter space. <laughs> so it was like a win-win-lose situation, but it was it was just absurd. So I just wanted to share it. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I thought that was going to segue into a story about Twitter or something there, but I think that's probably that's a that's a good a good point to introduce Twitter and full-time creator and things like that. Tenuously, yeah, the, the association to a bird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I've called this episode the journey to become a full-time creator because you mentioned in your bio that that's something that you're looking to do. And I thought that was quite interesting because uh, I've spoke about this a lot before about this this idea of being a creator and things. And I I already do it. So I kind of forget sometimes that some people may be looking to do it as a full-time job and things like that. And I thought it'd be a cool place to start to ask a simple question. Why? Where, where have you come from? Why do you want to go to the full-time creator thing? And what do you see as being a full-time creator? Three questions in one. Yes. Um, <laughs> why? I mean, the short answer seems like a interesting opportunity because if you, what is a creator? It's, it's a person that comes up with new stuff, create something from, from nothing. And depends on like what, what your medium is. Maybe it's creating new songs, new music, uh, new illustrations, new pieces of art, new pieces of content. It's just an interesting endeavor and um, happy to dive into that a little bit later, but then kind of starting earlier. So where do I come from? The, the, the 30 second pitch, I've given everyone over the past half year was the past 10 years I spent in early stage startups as a venture builder. So initially um, I worked for a venture fund and my job was literally within the span of three months, take a business plan, like a piece of paper, and then get it to running operations. So take it from nothing to something, hire someone to take it over as a founder and then hop over to the next project. And I did that um, in fintech and advertising technology. And in 2015, at some point I was playing with the thought of starting a business my, myself. So kind of like, if I can do it for someone else, why not do it um, on my own? And at the same time, I think maybe they, they noticed that I was thinking about it and they let me go. <laughs> so I was unemployed and pretty good timing um, Yeah, to, to, to start a business. And I started talking to a couple of people in my network and just pretty much offering them help if in case they were building a project or knew someone who needed a helping hand with literally anything unpaid. I would say like, look, I don't have anything to do. Let me know if I can help and I'll do it. And so I started talking with a, uh, with a guy who eventually became a co-founder and he had a couple of ideas. So I went over to his place uh, once a week or so. He had a whiteboard which sketch out these crazy change the world. Like this is the business model scaling to 20 countries within six months. And um, yeah, at, at some point there were two more people and we eventually started going after one market, which was the recruitment market. So uh, I was living back in San Francisco back in the day and 
we were just talking about the fact that if you go down the street, you see restaurants, bars, and every single one of them had these help wanted signs. So you had uh, large demand for labor at the same time, unemployment rates were pretty high back then, like five or 6 million people in the U S you said, Hmm, all of us have worked in ad tech and ad tech is just matchmaking in markets, making them more efficient and labor market is the same, like to blind and matching. And our initial idea was to create a web app that would be Tinder for jobs. So you're just like, you want a job, you open it up, swipe left and right, shows you jobs in your vicinity, and then you apply. Went after it for a year. Turns out selling to small and medium-sized businesses, very difficult um, and not profitable at all. And we blew pretty much all of our um, initial funding yeah, into developing a product that no one was using. But luckily, as part of this initial web app idea, one of our backend engineers was building a feature, like a small, tiny feature, which was only there to distribute jobs on Google, so online. So if I, as an employer, say I have this bartender job, you have it in the app, but then this one feature would take this job and spread it out to different job boards, Indeed, Craigslist, and so on. And turns out this is exactly a feature that um, companies who would hire for high volume would need. So companies like Uber and Lyft. And suddenly it was a aha moment where it's like, oh, snap, there's these huge employers who need 10,000 employees. They don't only need two per year, they need 10,000 a month. And yeah. we have the product for them. And uh, yeah, we, we ditched the web app, turned this feature into a product and eventually a platform. Um, yeah, grew the business, got acquired by a larger recruitment marketing agency. And that's kind of like the, the end of the entrepreneurial story. Um, so spent 10 years building technology businesses and uh, end of last year, I just wanted to have a change of pace. My goal was to do a sabbatical for an um, undecided amount of time. Started in January and um, yeah, lasted four weeks. So after <laughs> after four weeks, so w- what happened in those four weeks? I, I initially said, okay, a sabbatical for me would be to explore projects and topics that I'm passionate about and that I didn't have time in the past 10 years to go after. So I thought I was passionate about computer science because I tried to pick it up many, many times over the past 10 years. So I started a course era, like a certificate for um, IT automation in Python. And then the other topical area was physics. I had no nothing about physics and it's such a fundamental science. I would love to understand a little bit more. So I took another course on course era about physics, did those. And I just realized it's pretty tough. It's, <laughs> it's not something where my mind is, um, I don't think I have a particular talent for that. And so it's a little bit more difficult, particularly for computer science to pick it up. Um, and just by sheer coincidence, I was scrolling Twitter, saw a friend of mine posting uh, a tweet that he signed up 
to a um, to a Gumroad course about SEO. I signed up to the same, did it, and it was a. I swear to God, it was like a two-hour screen share session. That's all it was, the course. And the dude was explaining what type of plugins or what type of extensions he would use in Chrome to do SEO research. I get tremendous value out of it. I paid for it. And I followed that person in the coming days and what they were up sharing about their course launch. And it was like a kid from India. He did, I think, more than $7,000 in sales on the on launch day mm. which was pretty incredible Huge. and i was thinking you have customer validation so people like me paid money for it you have product validation because it brings tremendous value to people who consume it and and do it and at the end i was also thinking in the in the last year so 2020 i spent most of my time at the job doing internal documentation. So I was recording videos, explaining things to people. And I was just thinking I could do, I think I could do the same and why not try it? So it was kind of like a combination of many factors and seemed like an interesting enough project to say, let's try and figure out how to make an online course and see if you can actually earn any money on the internet with content. And um, one one additional thought, so like from my background in technology, entrepreneurship, my, my way of evaluating ideas was usually, can you generate enough revenue to, to finance a team of like five or 10 or 20 full-time employees? So it's always thinking of how much do you have to sell What's the margin um, in order, like what's the gross margin in order to be able to be profitable? Yeah. And then when I did the same math for a solo creator, it's crazy. Like if you if you sell an ebook um, for or not an ebook, but like some sort of online course content for a hundred dollars, and if you sell ten of those, it's a thousand dollars a month, and you're not too far away from affording this beer and, and a little bit of food and lodging for yourself. So kind of, you now seemed interesting. So you, did you consider the idea of an audience at this stage or anything? So obviously you think, right, I'm going to make a course, but the reason he made $7,000 is because he's presumably got a fairly big audience, right? Yeah. Uh, fairly big. So I would say at that point it was like, 3,000 followers on Twitter, which is big, and 3,000, I guess, highly engaged people who follow him specifically for this indie creator kind of SaaS entrepreneurship content. So the, um, the, the topic of an audience was obviously present. I, I didn't really have much of an audience um, on, on Twitter. It was like 500 people, but I've been on Twitter for 10 years and constantly on and off. So kind of like the first 500 are pretty much dead audience. Um, and my, I had a blog that I've been writing for two and a half years, but also constantly on and off. So I would say a couple of hundred views a month and then newsletter audience, probably 30 or 40 people, which are 
my mom, my aunts, <laughs> and like, the typical first 50. So I didn't really have an audience. Um, and right at that time, I also discovered the Twitter had analytics and it just blew my mind that very few tweets can generate that many impressions. So kind of like the, the leverage of tweets to reach versus blog posts to reach or um, email to reach was crazy. And I wanted to get a little bit more serious about Twitter. So kind of, uh, I started spending a bit more time um, on the platform earlier this year, primarily trying to filter out for myself what kind of people I want to follow and then start engaging with them. Didn't really start pushing out my own content, but yeah, started engaging. Uh, that this is one of the major problems with Twitter. You're completely right about the impressions thing because you can get a lot of impressions on a tweet, but that tweet is going to last maximum five days. And that's a yep. rare tweet that's going to last five days. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about this recently because I, I spend every day writing tweets. I push them out and then pretty much the majority of them are gone within 24 hours and you get no more advantage out of those. Whereas doing a podcast like this or doing an email newsletter or having a blog or your own website, the the value just increases as long as the topic doesn't go go out of fashion or, or whatever. The value of it increases over time. So it's, I'm thinking more and more about that. I've actually started doing the whole newsletter thing a little bit more seriously than I ever have done. I've always discounted that. Mm. And I'm now starting to see whilst I enjoy Twitter most of the time, over a long enough period of time, it is a lot of wasted time in terms of the the leverage that you get on on the the amount of effort that you have to put in to stay fresh all the time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the, the way I currently think about Twitter in, in my mix, I try to think about it in three funnel steps and kind of like top funnel, mid funnel, lower funnel. So top is just making noise and seeing that people just like get some sort of touch points with me. So that's for me, Twitter, LinkedIn a little bit less so, but I should leverage that because I have a ton of professional connections and the, the content on LinkedIn is just a dumpster fire. Yes. But another thing that I really like about Twitter is I, I frame it for myself as a public notebook. So me too. Um, yeah. And th th then, you know, kind of the, the advantage is just you, most of the time, nothing happens. Sometimes someone else responds to it and it's just adding additional, it's, it's just adding additional viewpoint on, 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 on what you've just seen and captured, which is pretty cool. And it's also besides the public notebook, it's creating content building blocks. So then in the, in the middle stage, which is my blog and uh, my newsletter. So for the blog, I use ghost as a publishing platform. Mm -hmm. And for the newsletter, I use review because uh, they've been acquired by Twitter. And I just figured you know, maybe down the road, they'll have like stronger integration in it. And then at the bottom, I have my paid products, which I don't really have that many of right now, um, but it would be online courses. And so the way Twitter the Twitter content building blocks fit into the mid funnel is every single time I write a newsletter, I usually leverage a tweet and just embed it 
in the newsletter. So I just look back at kind of what I noted down for myself in the past week, what sounds most interesting, where have I gotten most interesting comments, reactions, or whatever. And I will just go in the newsletter in a little bit more depth and commentary. So I don't rewrite what I have on Twitter, but I just embed it and then say, if you want to read the full kind of like logic, go this one. And here's my commentary, the same for the blog. So if I see that a newsletter topic or something on Twitter interests me a lot and I build some sort of opinion around it and I want to have it as solid state evergreen content that goes on the blog. And I just referenced the tweet via embeds. And one of the things that I also started doing right now, so for the online courses, um, and we can go into a little bit more detail if, if you want to, but I, I do all the research and all the content in Notion. Mm -hmm. And within Notion, if I explain certain concepts and if I have tweets that I can reference as further reading or as an explanation or summary of it, I will just embed it in Notion. So it's maybe doesn't generate crazy reach, but at the same time, it is just saving me time later on in producing the content. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a good strategy. I use Twitter in a very similar way. I'm constantly telling people that it's a it's a public notebook that I'm not I'm not your guru. Um, that things that I say is just my opinion, and your mileage may vary, and all that kind of thing. Um, I'm just waiting for the time when you will tweet out these one sentence, these one liners. It's like cease the day because only <laughs> you can, or something like that. Yeah, I I, I occasionally tweet some stuff like that to feed the algorithm to some extent but they're mm -hmm. actually they're actually ideas that have that i've had mm -hmm. that have cropped up somewhere or something they're not really for engagement i actually don't look at i don't delete the tweets and i don't look at the engagement i don't look at the likes i i don't really don't care um but probably the 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 difference in the way that you look at it to how i look at it is i've had this idea in my head for the longest time and i've talked about this on the podcast a lot um, about creating your own TV channel. It's a Gary V concept. Mm -hmm. um, and I and I use Twitter as my TV channel, essentially. So everything that I'm doing gets dumped on Twitter. So if, if you're interested in this podcast that we're recording right now, the latest episodes will be on Twitter. If you're interested in one of the other ones, it'll be on Twitter. My email newsletter, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. Everything's on Twitter. But if you're only interested in one of those things, you can go off and follow that thing away from my Twitter account. Because I'd imagine to some people, my Twitter account's quite annoying. So I use Twitter in a slightly different way in that I, I try to use it as a as a way to promote the huge array of different things that I'm doing, um, which, which sometimes makes it easier for making content. Um, because all the content's already made somewhere else. This thing that we're doing right now is a tweet that's on Twitter right now that's live and embedded in Twitter. So it can be easy. Crazy. Yeah. So it, it can be easier to create content like that. But I, I do see it more as if you want everything from me, my Twitter is about me and, and really not much else. Slightly egotistical, but, you know, you've, you've got to promote yourself. Nobody else is going to promote you either. Um, 
But that's only a fairly recent idea from me because I only started doing this in February last year. I've been on Twitter for um, 12 or 13 years like you. And for over a decade, I was just using it for for fun, really, to just to to follow people and and follow friends locally and things like that. Did you see Wayne Rooney's hair? (laughs) Like these kind of tweets. Yeah, you know, you know, I used to, I used to use it for that kind of thing, for consuming more than creating. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the the whole thing has flipped for me now. I barely ever read tweets, and I create a lot more content that goes onto the platform, um, which I guess is a bit of a strange flip. But as soon as I made that flip, I, I went from I don't know, like eight hundred followers to five thousand or something because I was actually creating valuable content for people to consume there was a reason to follow me at that point um yeah probably at the beginning it was like also not as valuable as it is right now and it's kind of it develops over time you probably just get more exposure to your thinking via just like publishing it out um and i guess that's the value of putting anything anywhere in public i i think so and i think with twitter something i always try to keep in mind I can't remember who tweeted it, but it's it's stuck in my mind all this time. Uh, when you choose to follow somebody on Twitter, you are choosing to be brainwashed by them. And and that tweet in and of itself is an example because the person who said it is stuck in my brain. Um, so when somebody follows you for over a, a longer period of time, you start to become brainwashed by their ideas if, if, if you're reading their tweets, which can be hugely powerful as a creator when you when you've got products coming out or things like that when i had when i had the magic visual coming out i I suddenly start talking a little bit more about visuals than i normally would providing a little bit more value and talking about some of the concepts out of the book for a couple of weeks before the book comes out and then when the book comes out people are primed to to buy to buy the book and, and to think about the things that i want to talk about so twitter can be super powerful for that as well to to brainwash people, <laughs> essentially, you know. It's very, very interesting because the the idea of having a personal TV station. Um, so I just literally the hour before we started talking, I gave a one hour presentation about remote team communication. It was like for the on deck learning conference, and one of the frameworks that I showed people was a two by two matrix where on the horizontal line you have reach of audience. So on the far left you have one person and on the right you have N, so any amount of numbers. And then on the vertical line you have synchronous communication and on the top you have asynchronous. And so kind of the bottom right corner, which is synchronous and N people is the broadcast category. And Twitter seems to be a good fit for that. So kind of like in a, in a corporate context, I was using Slack as an example, kind of like a public channel mm-hmm. or sorry, a, a general channel in Slack. And then for the asynchronous and N, so like high reach and high time leverage would be your solid state evergreen information. That's usually any type of documentation. So kind of like wikis, handbooks, um, video documentation for you that would be, I guess, your podcast episodes, your video recordings, your books. And I've mapped this out so far only for organizational context, 
but it would be interesting to do the same for individual creators because I, I'm sure you can also map it out um, for your own purpose and then you can decide what's the highest leverage yeah. use of your time. Well, I, I think you need you need a mix of both really, don't you? That's why I asked you the question about the audience at the very beginning. You know, you was talking about making the courses and I said, have you been thinking about making the audience? Because ultimately you need the market to sell the thing to and and as the thing gets more niche you need a more specific market um with with the book with the visual book it was really only my followers that probably would have been interested in it so i needed to make sure that i had the followers before i released the book so i think that there's there's two there's two kind of sides to it really there there is Certainly, there's there's some things that are, are way more high leverage than other things. Twitter for me is not not high leverage activity at all, but Twitter allows the ability to promote the high leverage things. And without having the Twitter, without having the audience of Twitter, I'd get no eyeballs on the high leverage things. It, it would take me much longer, years longer to get that in front of the people that I'd want want to see it. So I, I think the important mix to find with, with Twitter is having the Twitter, so being focused on, to some extent, growing an audience or making regular, consistent content. I don't like the idea of growing an audience, really. I think you should be doing it for higher reasons than that. A public notebook, like we said, I think that's a good reason to be doing it. Um, but you need that audience to, to be building there so you can release a product to an audience later down the line. And, and and when you've got those two, you can start to play with that a little bit. So like what I'm doing right now, I'm trying to convert some of the Twitter audience into higher leverage audience members on my email newsletter because over the a longer period of time, that'll be more valuable to me because I'm always thinking, what's going to happen to Twitter? You know, you know it, it might fall out of favor with people, you know, it might become a subscription service or they might change how the algorithm works. That happens all the time. So I want the highest leverage audience possible, which is an email newsletter, really, because I control it and I can send content out to them whenever I want. So I do think you need a mix of, a mix of both of them, but one feeds the other, really. For sure. Imagine uh, a a dark mirror scenario where email service providers also unlock kind of like algorithmic content recommendation and suddenly email also becomes <laughs> you're like at the uh you know they can control completely <laughs> if your emails get seen or not that would be like a horror scenario i i yeah i know i it, i do think about it sometimes and i, I do wonder about the idea often it's why i've taken so long to build an email newsletter I wonder how much email newsletters are actually read and how valuable they are to some people. But I need it as another audience because the way that I look at it is that rather than having one big audience on Twitter, I'm playing lots of little bets with an audience on YouTube, an audience with my podcast, an audience with this different podcast over here, an audience on, on Twitter, an audience who reads my blog, and... Um, basically lots of different audiences all over the place so if, if anything does happen to one of them i've still got some of the audience somewhere there'll be a way to reach them i think there's there's two different 
two different games to play with with building an audience. There's having a highly focused audience on one platform, Twitter, for example, highly focused audience on one platform where you talk about one thing. It, it might be growth marketing or whatever. It doesn't matter what the topic is, but you talk about one thing all of the time on one platform. You build a huge audience very quickly when you do that, if you're talented at doing it and all those other kind of things. But the issue with that is that you have a, a highly focused audience that are only interested in one thing. So the the game that I prefer to play is have a much smaller, more spread out audience that are more interested in me across anything that, that I do. So that they know me, they've seen me in videos, they've heard my voice, they've read my words. So they, they'd be more interested in turning their eyes to anything that, that I do comes back to that TV channel idea. It, again, the Gary V thing. It's exactly what Gary V did. Um, God, how long ago was it now? Five, five, six, seven years ago? It's exactly what he did in the very beginning. He built an audience around himself. And when you think about it, he wasn't doing anything interesting. <laughs> he was getting in, getting in and out of cars most days, going into meetings, Complaining about people who complain. <laughs> yeah, uh, in, and just talking yeah. about doing the work and hating Mondays and that kind of thing. But the fact that he was creating content constantly, every day at that point, and, and he was charismatic on camera, it meant his success was inevitable. But he, he wasn't, he didn't just talk about one thing, he talked about a lot of things. And I, when I think about the really truly great great creators whether you like their content or not is irrelevant but when you think of somebody like gary v you think of somebody like joe rogan who was just absolutely huge um you think of any of those those kind of people who have transcended mediums almost even though they're only on primarily one medium the thing that's in common with them all is that they're the opposite of niche <laughs> they're they're, they're anti-niche almost they they yeah. They talk about anything because they build a brand on them instead, their, their own personality. Two people we discussed recently and they almost transcend product is Seth Rogen, yes. the comedy actor. Have you heard that he is making ceramics right now? Is he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he makes these um, ashtrays for, for weed smokers right. that look... The he's, first he's big into looked, weed, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. He's like a big advocate. Um, he's also from British Columbia, so I think they're pre pretty progressive on that front. But I think what happened, he literally just went to a ceramics workshop one day, did a course, and like posted a photo. So like, did ceramics, and obviously the first batch looked like shit. <laughs> and he, I guess because he had such a large audience, People said, oh my God, it's so cool. Can we buy them? And he was then, yeah. huh, maybe. And so now there's like these professional photo shoots where he's like posing right next to his ceramics. And then the other person that comes to mind is Ryan Reynolds. I was also. just about to say him as well. Yeah. Yeah. He bought a football club in your yeah. country, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and the Man gin Man. and the gym brand as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Aviation gin. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. And like when you were talking about figuring out the different channels i mean that's exciting isn't it it's mm. it's kind of 
it's, it's, it's a shitty problem to have from an entrepreneurial perspective, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of exciting. And if you're the kind of person that um, finds joy in these like real life riddles, yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the main reasons why I'm attracted to the creator, um, to, to the creator path or whatever you want to call it, because it's not so different from company building. Both of them are highly creative. Uh, yeah, like mm. things or, or, or tasks, because you constantly just come up uh, with, with problems that you haven't seen before. And you just have to find solutions and it's like highly stimulating. It's very, very exciting to be in this kind of position. It, it is. And and there's also the other side of it that you, you, you're using multiple skills at the same, mm-hmm. at the same time as well. I've heard, hold on a sec, my cat's going to stand on the recorder. <laughs> no worries. Uh, you're using multiple skills at the same time. So when you, you think, I really like the, the term full stack creator, the, the idea that somebody uh, might be a podcaster and a designer and a writer and a, a YouTuber and a tweeter and, and all of these things all at the same time because it, it does exactly what you're talking about. It keeps things exciting. The when I, when I was talking about the earlier before we started, I was talking about editing and producing the podcast for somebody. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did the, the graphics, edited the podcast, produced the podcast put it all together and output the files and there's so many different skills going it's like five jobs like 20 years ago yeah exactly so many different skills going all the way across that but that's the bit that i really enjoy learning all these different skills and and yeah figuring out the platforms too i'm i'm on youtube and the only thing i post on youtube most of the time is the podcast and it doesn't do that well on youtube and i've been trying to figure out for ages how to make it do better on on youtube um, talk to a couple of people. Everybody says YouTube is the hardest platform to crack in terms of building an audience and all that kind of thing. And uh, I, I enjoy that that challenge of of jumping around all the different platforms, even with the images that I create on one of my other accounts. They do vastly different on Twitter versus Instagram. So then there's another platform to to try mm-hmm. and work out um, why do they do worse on one platform or why do they do better on the other and I've got hugely different sized audiences across the two as well. It's it's all that kind of stuff is, is really useful for me professionally as well because I can take that back to the design agency and all our clients and I can understand help them understand what kind of content works across different platforms and all that kind of thing. I th- I honestly think it's the future. This this thing we're talking about about being a, a full time creator. I think in the future. The, the term full stack creator won't even exist. You'll just be a creator and you'll, you'll, you'll make everything across all of the platforms that already seems like voodoo to some people. It'll just become the norm because it, it's just the, the way that you do it. If I can sit here and live stream this podcast and do the graphics and switch camera angles and things like that, anybody else can do it. There's, there's nothing special about me. We're just moving towards that that idea of everybody building small audiences where we, we, we all get to uh, build our own little Joe Rogan empire type thing, basically, where if you, if you want it, if you're interested in doing that kind of thing, not that I'm, I'm saying Joe Rogan is a beacon of success or whatever, whatever you think about Joe Rogan, 
but the the model that he's approached is really interesting because he he is essentially a media entity now that gets millions of downloads of every episode of, of his podcast that eventually sold out to Spotify for multiple millions of uh, dollars. Uh, and and the only reason that happened is because he, he, he stuck at it for a really long time. He was good at it. Yeah, he was a TV celebrity as well. Obviously, that helped. But he, he's been a consistent podcaster all that time, and he, he believed in the medium. But there's lots of different skills that go go along with that. And I, I think we're, we're going to see more of those kind of people, lots of little mini Joe Rogans with smaller audiences. 100%. There's so many, so many different directions that I took notes on that we can go down. But one thing I want to get out. Um, so because you said Joe Rogan, he has obviously like a huge audience. Uh, I was a couple of years ago, like visiting a friend in New York and um, his boyfriend w- was there and we were like all watching, keeping up with the Kardashians. And us Europeans, we just said, it's crazy how much interest there is around the Kardashians. And so my friend's boyfriend, who's Canadian, he said, it's basically their royalty. And yeah. it's it's crazy because it's... It's worrying. It's worrying, but at the same time, it's like wild. It just shows you like what you can do with the crazy distribution, but they probably pull in higher viewership numbers than the queen, obviously more time spent in public discourse about the Kardashians than queen Elizabeth. And it's crazy, but that's that just like as a side note, um, because you said YouTube is a crazy or difficult nuts to crack. So at on deck course creators, we had a couple of people who were pretty serious about YouTube. Um, one of the guys who participated was Thomas Frank, like he has like 2.3 million <laughs> subscribers, but like, let's, let, let, let's go down to the people who, who are uh, a little bit closer to where we are on the journey. So there's one guy, um, buddy of mine, Daniel Canossa, and he is a former systems engineer who is living in Asia, was teaching salsa because he's from Spain. And then he said, hmm, I'm a systems engineer. I like teaching because I was teaching salsa and I love notion because all my systems thinking can go together. So he created this notion course, how to use it to structure your life goals and your productivity. And his main channel is YouTube. So he started, I think in September last year, and his goal was to just publish one video every single week. So he's now at 1,700 subscribers or something like that. And he said the main learnings for him, number one, so consistency, super important. Um, he said like more than once a week, at least for him, uh, was very, very difficult to get the cadence because it's just like so much effort. Secondly, then you have to outsource at some points, get an editor. Yeah. And then the two most important things for the algorithm, like one is the length. So he said everything should be like around 10 minutes or slightly longer. So that would seems to work really well. And secondly, um, one of the learnings from, I think, Ali Abdal's part-time YouTuber Academy was the thumbnails and the headlines first. So most professional YouTubers think about those two first. And if they have a combination where they think people will 100% click it, only then they start thinking about 
the scripting and the production. So it's almost like starting with the initial conversion metric and then, um, yeah, the content, the value that you actually want to deliver, which is pretty crazy, but it's like audience first approach again. It works if that's the kind of content you want to make. Um, and what, what I mean by that is if you do want to build an audience quickly and you want to become known for something very specific, that absolutely works. But if you want to just become known for a random podcast on the internet, wow, did you hear that? My cat. Yes. <laughs> I want to participate. <laughs> if if you want to become known for a random podcast on the internet, the advice isn't as good. And and then it becomes the fact that the consistency stuff, absolutely still important. I think that's important across any platform. You need to be consistent. You need to build an understanding with your audience, a contract almost. I'm going to turn up every week, and that's what people want to know. But I, I think the, the the other side of it, and what I hope is going to prove true, because I've seen it play out with Gary Vee and Joe Rogan and other people with long-form podcasts on Twitter, my long-term play with this is that you're so consistent on Twitter, uh, on uh, YouTube, sorry, over the longest period of time, you make good content. It isn't. It isn't algorithm friendly. It never does well when it first gets posted, but eventually you reach a point where you've got so many episodes, so much content of interesting content that it starts to snowball and it, it builds. It builds on the back end. Um, that's my hopeful play with YouTube at the minute. I've got two hundred and fifty or three hundred followers or something on YouTube, but it's never been a priority for me. I just upload them. But I, I do a lot of anti-algorithm tactics, like having a really long podcast like this one that goes on YouTube that most people probably won't sit and watch. I don't fill out all the notes. I, I don't go back and put, you, you know, the, the, the markers on the episodes and things like that. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't play a lot of the games that I probably should play with YouTube. But I still believe over a longer period of time, and we're talking five to ten years, now, I think it'll play out in the long term, having the you know the longer form content. Um, it just depends how how quick of a game you're playing. Really, that's that's the that's the point I'm really getting at. Do you know mm-hmm. what I, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm curious how, how that will pan out. I mean, like one of the things, if you wanna let's say get someone outsourced to assist you, like one of the things for podcasts that you could do similar to what Lex Friedman or I think even Joe Rogan are doing. So they have these long form episodes, then they have a separate channel, which is called JRE clips or Lex Friedman clips. Then use exactly the same formulaic kind of approach, like six to 10 minutes and outrageous, outrageous thumbnails. There's always an alien or like some (laughs) sort of Illuminati scripture and that, that crap gets clicked and then backlinks back to the, full length episode yeah i don't know it's a it's a obviously i should shut the fuck up because i i have five videos on youtube and <laughs> don't know anything well, about them well you know you, you make an interesting point but what's actually even more interesting about that is jre clips and where jre clips came from so jre clips kind of proves my point joe rogan was pushing these episodes out live on youtube over and over you know you'll have seen them um after a couple of years, maybe even longer than that, JRE Clips popped up 
it was unofficial. It was a, mm -hmm. a, a another you know another set of guys that was making them. They were watching the YouTube shows. These pop up all the time on on YouTube. The unofficial clip channels. And then eventually, JRE clips got so popular, in some clips more popular than the original video, that they did a deal. The, the, the deal's never particularly been made public as such, but they now work together in some fashion. So maybe Joe Rogan pays them to do the clips. Or oh, okay. I, I'm not sure how it works, but basically they came officially under the, the, the Joe Rogan banner and became the official JRE clips essentially so that kind of proves to some extent the point that i'm making that he he did the episodes for so long i mean he was one of the first podcasts i used to listen to i don't listen yeah. to him i don't listen to him much anymore but he was one of the first podcasts he was one of the first people in the game and mm -hmm. the, his format of the podcast hasn't really changed in 12 or 15 years and and then yes his popularity started to increase through the consistency, I think, through the consistency and the sheer volume of back episodes that he had. Because what what the sheer volume of episodes did was when he started to want to bring bigger guests on, it proved that he was an established resource, that he'd been yeah, around. Yeah, proof of work. Yeah, it proved that he'd, he'd been around for a long time. Yeah. And yeah, he's an actor. Yeah, people know who he is in America. He was a comedian as well and all those kind of things. But still, if you was, I don't know, Will Smith, for example, you wouldn't go on a comedian's first podcast episode, would you? That would be fucking stupid. But True. you'd go on a, a comedian's podcast who had 2,000 back episodes who you knew he wasn't just a comedian. He was a comedian slash podcaster because he'd been doing it for so damn long. Um, I'd be willing to bet as well that it somehow influenced his greater rise in UFC too to becoming a commentator because it it was it was around a similar time too he was just a guy on a random uh, a random comedy in america i forgot the name of it um and I, the reason i know this is cuz i was watching the old ufc's recently um the the first ufc's man they're hilarious they're so bad they're hilarious and he, joe rogan comes into it uh, as kind of a uh, like a backstage commentator, a bit like a wrestling backstage commentator, really, really early on. Uh, but ultimately, eventually, he becomes one of the main commentators, doesn't he? So I'd be willing to bet as well that some of that played into the fact that he'd been doing a podcast for a really long time. How many how many episodes do you have? Oh, I'm I'm, I'm a young baby at two hundred and twenty. You're two hundred and twenty. Did you hear that Seth Godin is willing to go on any podcast that has more than a hundred episodes? I'd not heard that he was willing to go on any podcast. I heard that he always tells people when he gets asked to go on podcasts, he says, do, do 100 episodes and then I'll come on your hundredth episode. Well, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk to him, I figure like you have enough credibility to, to shoot him an email. It's worth, it's worth an ask, but it's an interesting, it's interesting point though, isn't it? That, I've done, I just told you I'd done 220 episodes. You immediately assume that I'm ready to bring on somebody like Seth Godin purely because I've done 220 episodes. I assume you haven't listened to the 220 episodes. Well, I've listened to the last few ones. I've, 
I, I'm experiencing currently like what it feels like to be introduced by you. You have a soothing voice, tech works out. I'm comfortable. <laughs> We're talking about different topics and you put a lot of thought into like what you want to present to your audience. So it seems to me that it, yeah, it's not your first rodeo and <laughs> I would, I would totally feel confident listening to an episode with you and Seth. Well, I've got, uh, I was going to, I was going to say, I've got Seth Gordon coming on then. <laughs> I've, got, <laughs> I've got quite a few big guests coming up in the next month or two. So I, I said, I've got 220 episodes, but only I think 50 of those have been these kind of conversations that we're having right now. It was a solo mm-hmm. podcast for the rest of the time. Awesome. So I, what the strategy for me was to just chat to loads of people over and over, just chat to loads of people, figure out the technology, make sure it all worked, make sure the live streaming worked, make sure I could handle it all, you know, because there's lots of crazy shit going on right now. Um, and then start to approach bigger guests when I'd started to build proof of work. So over the next month or two, I think it's next month, I've got um, quite, I think, three or four pretty big guests coming up. Um, people like Ed Latimer. Don't, don't know if you've heard of Ed Latimer. He's a, he's a Twitter, yeah, the, Twitter guy. Yeah, the, the philosopher boxer, right? Yeah. Uh, got Ed, awesome. La- Ed Latimer coming up. Mr. Modern Wisdom himself as well. Um, he's coming on. Who's Mr. Modern Wisdom? Have, have you not listened to uh, the Modern Wisdom podcast? Not yet, but uh, I clearly have to, right? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll say nothing else and go listen to the Modern Wisdom podcast. It's oh. kind of a, it's a, Chris Williamson, he's called. It's, a, it's in a very similar vein to the Joe Rogan style. He gets really interesting guests on. How's conversations mm-hmm. like we're having, really, um, with people for an hour? Um, he, he's become pretty big um, in term over the last year or two. It's become pretty big. So, yeah, I started chasing down bigger guests. But only once I had the proof of work. Um, I, so that's, that's kind of when I think, uh, returning to your point about, to some extent, the hacks, the, the hacks of, of thinking about the title first and then thinking about uh, thinking about the thumbnail first. The way that I'm doing YouTube, it doesn't work because I'm I'm just talking to somebody for an hour. So I I have to clip up the podcast to be able to use those tactics. That's the next stage for me, um, bringing somebody in to help with that. I could do it. I can't be bothered. It's too much effort. Um it's a lot of work to clip to clip out those to clip out the five to you know the the seven to eight minute clips and 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 then upload them to youtube it just takes time so that i'm not at that point yet the download figures are going up and up and up uh, and it's nice to see but i'm not at the tipping point yet where i i want to hire somebody to to bring in to do that kind of stuff um there'll be some point and I don't know when that'll be, maybe in a year's time, where I'll have to make the leap and I'll, you know, I'll be losing out on the money initially because, like I was saying to you, I don't make any money from podcasting. But um, there'll be there'll be some tipping point there where I'll have to do that, where I'll have to invest a little bit of money to start to see the the second rise in in the growth. Mm-hmm. 
Super interesting stage. Um, super interesting stage. One one of the, the the thoughts that comes to mind right now, you you asked me initially, did you think about audience? And I I agree, audience is super important, but at the same time, the product is also super important. And it's almost like as a creator, you have to level both of them up. So kind of you were putting so much thoughts and like so many reps in, into the product to make it a good value for everyone who's listening into it. But at the same time, you're expanding your distribution and kind of like building more eyeballs, more ear cups, um, for your product. One of the, one of the things I encountered earlier this year. So when I embarked on the course creator, uh, journey, my initial, my initial naive thinking was I will create a self-paced evergreen course, passive income, the Holy grail. I want it all <laughs> immediately. And so I started working on the audience components and started building in public. So literally just documenting every fart that was <laughs> taken here <laughs> left and right, but it, it worked. It was a pr pretty interesting experiment. And, uh, and I, I believe in the concept for certain types of products. If you're Palantir, probably building in public is not the best idea, yeah. but as a, as a, as a course creator, it helps to kind of you know, ease, ease your audience, like warm up the leads a little bit. But I, I launched it after like two months of building an audience, like one month of recording the five hour video self-paced course. And what I saw was people bought it. So people spent $99 to pay like a five hour video course via Gram road, but no one took it. So yes. people weren't actually not even completing it. They, they didn't even start doing it. And yes. there's like many components to that. And I think this is specifically for online courses, but I'm sure every type of product or service that a creator does has these kind of learnings affiliated to the product, which you also have to go through. And so for me right now, I am experimenting with a different kind of delivery method, which is two day workshops because I have some sort of control to get people into a Zoom meeting, force them through a progression and get instant feedback just by literally looking at how they react on camera, right? And with a self-paced product, I couldn't get these learnings, so I couldn't improve the product. And any type of audience growth still wouldn't help me to build a better creator business. And so it's, it's almost like you have to you know, build both of them up at the same time. Yes. Yeah, you, you do. You do have to build them both up at the same time. Some some people choose to build them all in public. That isn't right for some people. Some people choose to do that. That's the way that I mostly do things. In fact, you could say this entire podcast, just the podcast has built been built entirely in public. The first ever podcast episode I recorded was on that day, the first time I'd ever recorded a podcast. So awesome. you you did literally get to see me changing from that to this if you go right back to the first ever podcast that I did. Uh, do you have do you have people who saw your first podcast who you think might be checking this one out or like one of the more recent episodes? I d I don't know. It's it's kinda hard to say, isn't it? I've I've never had a comment on any of those. I often mm. I often go back to the first ever podcast, they weren't video recorded. Um, they were just audio. I often go back and listen to them because that is one of... So 
I, I don't know if you know know this, but I do a lot of daily projects. I do a lot of things for a long period of time. So over the years, over the last fifteen years, I've I've designed a poster every day for three hundred and sixty five days, um, a record sleeve every day. I make an image every day. I write tweets every day. Blah blah blah. I do a lot of these kind of daily challenges. Uh, the podcasting started out was one of those daily challenges. So. It, it, in the kind of initial thing, it was just about getting the reps in for me on, on the first ever podcast that I did. And it, it wasn't until I started, when I got to a, about 50 episodes ago, when I said, you know, I'm starting to record these and everything and put them live on, on YouTube, that I really started to feel like I was a competent podcaster, that I was good, good, good at what I did, basically. Um, and and that would have been about six or seven hundred episodes in for me, um, of putting them out in public every day, uh, not every day, but you know every week. So when you think about the idea of building the two things at the same time, like you said, I I, I often think about where I would have been with that um, if I would have started a little bit later. I probably wouldn't have ever started if I wouldn't have done it in public. Public works for me, not necessarily for everybody else. Where do you kind of sit on that? Do, do you do you see yourself as making lots of more, you know, you know, more courses? Are you going to make lots of, not necessarily bad courses, but little courses and things in public that maybe don't get noticed to try and learn more lessons? Or are, are you just going to keep uh, moving on to the next thing now? Are you going to keep mm-hmm. it public or just hide it? So the, the entire public thing just started, I would say, more this year. I would argue that a blog is some sort of yeah. kind of public thinking, and it's very scary to publish your first piece of writing. So um, I enjoy currently the, the, the experiments of building and learning in public because sometimes when I share, let's say a challenge, one of the, one of the examples I can think of is, uh, taxation in, in, in Europe, if you're a creator, right? Like, uh, do you collect VAT and do you remit in, in, in the countries? If you, uh, if you sell a digital product, like how do you go about that? Mm. And uh, pretty much every, every digital creator has to think about that, but it's a, it's a topic that's not sexy at all. And, <laughs> it just needs to be solved. Otherwise you, you will have to pay a lot of cash or um, you'll, you'll, you'll end up in jail. And so this is something where I just communicated, look, I have no idea. This is like what I was able to research on my own. I have a conversation with my tax advisor next week. Is there anyone else who has some sort of pointers? And it's interesting when people chime in and this was, the, this is one of the topics, this and uh, payment fee issues with PayPal where it got most resonance because it just goes deep with people, right? Like if you are a creator and if you can, if you can put yourself into the shoes of someone who puts 10, 10 hours a day, maybe even more into creating something, putting it out and suddenly you get a charge of 20% plus on your total revenue. You're like, what the hell? <laughs> what's, what's going on? It's almost like a, um, Robin Hood 
rallies the the poor <laughs> kind of kind of situation. Yeah. So long story short, I I am currently trying the the, the public experiment works for me. Um, obviously, it doesn't work for every type of company. Um, we didn't do it in the in the ad tech company that I built previously because we had a lot of confidential customer data that we just didn't want to discuss in some sort of business processes and ways how we would build our system that we didn't want to disclose to our competition. So um, just didn't lend itself that well. But if you're a creator and if you have to build an audience, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see any negatives with that for me at least. Right do now. you think, do you think there's a way to get it to work in corporations, in ad tech and things like that? And do you think it'd be valuable do you think it's still valuable to keep everything so hidden and then launch a product? I wouldn't say I wouldn't say everything, but there's certain things. I'll say it like that. Um, it, it feels in the corporate. It feels like that in the corporate world, the market is let's say on a scale more zero sum then um again blanking totally on it but like the, the opposite of zero sum is like a uh, like where the, where it's increasing the pie like a growth yeah. market or whatever you want to call it um giving and away if, everything if, essentially yeah if i as a creator tell you exactly how or as an online educator how i think about creating office hours weekly office hours in order to grow my audience to test my material to share assets in return for emails that go into the newsletter and how I set it up all in Luma in order for it to, to do it automatically. I don't have any harm for it because as a creator, you, your product is some of the content, but also you as a personality. For example, I am currently trying to teach how to run remote organizations. And I'm sure some people would rather learn about this topic from someone who's a native speaker. And some people might be more attracted to delivery by me because I have a slightly different context and that's fine. So kind of like our pools of audience and customers are different anyway. I think in a corporate setup, depending on the industry, it can be that the the main decision factors are costs or performance. That's it. And so you as a brand don't really have that much leverage and your the way you run your business is kind of what determines your bottom line. It's kind of, if you give that away, I don't know. Mm. Others can probably easily replicate that. It's it's, it's an interesting topic because some with, with obviously I work with a lot of businesses and and some sometimes I tell them to be a little bit more open with some things and 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 give away things. You know the old the old adi- adage of um, give give away all your knowledge for free and then charge for implementation. That that kind of uh, attitude it works for some businesses. It doesn't work for others. But I always, I always think it's an interesting thought experiment. For example, because most of the time people don't want to implement things; 
that's why they pay you to implement it. And, yeah. and really, that's that's often the value of most businesses. Not all, but most, uh, particularly service businesses. And I often think, what would have happened? Not that it'll ever happen, but what would happen if Coca-Cola gave away the secret of to make Coca-Cola? They just put it online one day. They put it on their website one day. Um, what happened next? Would would Coca-Cola dive overnight? I, I, I'd be willing to bet that it wouldn't, and I'd be willing to bet that it'd only increase their brand. I mean, there's other things to think about in that. Obviously, they're a super established brand now, Coca-Cola, so the actual secret of their product isn't the value anymore. It's the brand name, Coca-Cola. That's what matters. The, how it tastes and what the product is doesn't really matter too much anymore. But it's always an interesting thought experiment and I, I think as more and more of us are becoming creators i heard somebody put it this way the other day that businesses are mostly now especially new businesses most businesses are becoming a team of creators first and then a business second an organization second and i think that'll prove even more true over the next 50 50 hundred years 50 or 100 years where Every business, say we start a new business together, will be a collection of creators who are building our own audiences and then pushing them towards the product that we're building together. But we also have the individual power as well as uh, individuals. It's it's interesting. I don't think we're quite there yet with a lot of things with organisations, but I, I do think some big organisations could take quite a lot of leafs out of creators' books. You're right. And what you just said with Coca-Cola is a pretty interesting example because I I would also say, I guess, with a more established brand, it tilts a little bit more to your favor. SpaceX, I think, is doing the same where they even release all the rocket blueprints into the public domain. Or maybe it's like Tesla, like one of those two uh, yeah. Elon Musk companies just releases technical information because they say um, if it is in the public domain, other companies can start applying these best practices, which yeah. then in turn will kind of like accelerate the vision of a green planet or like survival on, a, on, on Mars, yada, yada, yada. And that helps, I think, once you're established because people want to work for you, people want to see you as the pinnacle and it's it's almost like not a country of origin effect. It's like a organization of origin effect at some mm. point, like who, who made it um, in terms of the, the loose affiliations or loose bundles of creators. Uh, I could also see that we, we also had a discussion with two buddies of mine. Like one of them is a developer and investor. And the other guy is a former CEO of a DevOps company and we're talking about this concept of uh time bound collective so let's say we do something for 12 months together we get it from zero to like actually running automated to some degree split the equity and then go to other projects obviously easier said than done and that would be amazing if it would actually work like this but it's it's possible. There's this one book by the author called Elaine Pofeld. Um, she wrote a book called One Million Dollar One Person Company. 
Okay. Fantastic book is, is, is really great. And she, what she did, she did an analysis of sole proprietors in the United States and specifically sole proprietors who made more than $1 million a year. And I think it was an absurdly high amount. It was like definitely more than a thousand people, but I think it was like much, much more than that. I don't want to misquote the numbers, but her entire book talks about how there's different types of business models, kind of like e-commerce service content where people have proven that this model works and $1 million, one person company just means that per one individual in the company, you have a revenue of $1,000 a year. And the, the techniques by which they do it is they focus on kind of actual value creation, which is branding, customer relationships and product development and everything else is being outsourced. So like once you, for, for instance, in your case, it would be you were interviewing the people, you were maybe putting together the ideas for the posters, but then all the rests kind of like the distribution, the editing and all of that you can outsource. And that's how individuals generate leverage with those business models. Great book. Mm, I'll check it out. I've, that's not one I've heard of actually. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, I've I've heard it heard it said multiple times by people in various ways that we we're living in the marketing age now. It used to be the product age where it you in the 70s and the 80s all the advertising was about the product. You had to have the best product and you marketed and you advertised on having the best product. We live in the marketing age now. Doesn't matter what the product is, the product can be shit. But if you've got the best marketing, you're gonna win. Because what's the worst product that you can think of that has that wins because it has marketing? Is there anything that pops to mind immediately? Well, on on one level, Facebook. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, just just because all, all the kind of damage it's doing to to and none of the none of this is even it's been written in some books, but. We won't get to find out the damage for 20 or 30 years, but social media in general, but specifically something like Facebook. Um, but a lot a lot of other things as well, a lot of established kind of products. The things that I was particularly thinking of is, is for example, um, I've got a pair of Nike Air Force Ones downstairs. They're, they're a pair of trainers. They're made for, for like, pay, you know, cents or a couple of dollars in Bangladesh or something like that. It isn't mm-hmm. a... It isn't a good product in any sense of the word. Whereas the the belt that I wear around my jeans, it was made in Yorkshire by one guy in, in, in a little tannery that he's got. He's put hours into this and it's got a beautiful brass buckle and things like that. I know it's a quality product, but the majority of the products that we buy, we we know they're not a quality product. We know where they're made and we don't we don't give a shit because it's got the it's got the brand name on it i'm, I'm guilty of that like everybody else but apple, yeah, but yeah I, I, apple <laughs> and things like that the majority of the things that we buy now we buy them because of i tweeted about this the other day the majority of the things we buy we buy because of the feeling that we get by buying them or the feeling that we get by wearing them um the, one of the only reasons i'm you know wearing the lacoste t-shirt and 
the the Nike trainers that I've got downstairs because they're Nike and because it's Lacoste. It's I, there's literally no other value to it other than the brand and the brand has been built through the marketing over those years. It wouldn't have been that simple. Um, over you know in the seventies and the eighties, it used to be about the product and making a good product and it's completely shifted now and scary in some ways how easy it would be if you're a talented marketer advertiser and those kind of things how easy it would be to make a very crap thing well the fire festival that's another one that springs to mind the that's the whole story of the fire festival that it was all the marketing nothing oh else, my god <laughs> nothing else but the marketing and uh, yeah that that disappointed quite a few people <laughs> So funny. So incredibly funny. Anyway, as we've been going for nearly an hour and a half. Jesus, we should yeah. we should probably wrap it up because it's probably getting, well, it's late for me. It's probably getting late for you too. Yeah, easy. No, it was a, it was a bunch of, bunch of fun. Um, yeah, you can, if you, if you need an endorsement for Seth Godin, I'm, I'm happy to, to vouch for you for being a good, interviewer and host and everything i i will use that and try and get seth godin if you've got any links to seth godin art to let me know and uh i'll see if we can get him on (laughs) i will do a quick gmail search but truth be told i interviewed seth godin 10 years ago for 10 minutes and it was <laughs> the opposite of what you are so it was like i've never done an interview uh in english but it's just like in, in any language yeah. and we we were organizing this startup conference in vienna and through some crazy contacts we just got this this legend of a man to block out 15 minutes in the schedule and I wasted his time so hard. So, oh my God. If you, if you get Seth Godin on your show, um, don't even mention it to him. I would have said, <laughs> say sorry for me, but he probably blanked it out of his memory. But I will I will go into Gmail and try to f- figure out the email address. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you can, I'm, I'm sure you can get him on. Love it. I'll do my best. Cheers, Art, and I will speak to you soon. Yeah, Craig, thank you so much. And yeah, have a good night. Thanks, man.